What's up, everybody? It's Austin Rivers from Off Guard, and I've got some exciting news. Off Guard, hosted by me and my guy Pasha Hagigi, is officially moving to our own podcast feed. We are now dropping two shows every week. Me and Pasha go way back and talk so much hoops already that we figured it was time to fire up the mics and let you in on these conversations. Every week, Pasha and myself will hit on the biggest stories happening around the league. Tap into the show twice a week on our new Off Guard feed on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike presented by FanDuel. The second half of the NBA season is here and you can bet on the action with an assist from FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, you can check the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays, all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page and the Pulse and bet live same-game parlays for every NBA game. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit theringer.com slash RG to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus in president select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit theringer.com slash RG. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. If you're busy like me and you're trying to catch your kids' games, it's important to have somewhere where you can go to find a good hotel. We're all over the place. Sometimes... You know, we're in Florida, we'll be in New York. You want to take the wife on a quick vacation and get away? Whether you're looking for a relaxing getaway or heading out of town to see the playoffs, Hotels.com app has a perfect hotel for every trip. Compare up to five hotels side by side so you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings without having to switch back and forth between options. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett, still battling the voice issue, as you probably noticed, hoping this is gone by the next time we record. I'll get into some Patriots because we got the unfortunate news that Kendrick Bourne is done for the season, the Patriots' best offensive player. I also want to get into the trading deadline because I do think there's one guy on this Patriots team that makes a lot of sense to move at the deadline, and I think you can get really good return on him. So I'll get into that in a little while. I'll get into the Celtics and the Bruins, both with big wins tonight. The Celtics, a dominant one, and the Bruins, just an important win over the Florida Panthers. But I did want to start with Mac Jones because Adam Schefter today was on the Pat McAfee podcast, or excuse me, the Pat McAfee show, and Pat McAfee asked him if either Ryan Tannehill or Mac Jones could be traded to Minnesota because, of course, Kirk Cousins is now dealing with with a torn Achilles, and he's lost for the season. So here's what Schefter had to say about Mac. You know, Mac Mac Jones is interesting, but then that's New England just cashing out on its season. Well, first of all, I'd say the season is already over to inform Adam Schefter. They're not going anywhere. But anyway, he goes on to say, because one of the reasons the Patriots haven't made a quarterback change is they just don't have another guy right now that they feel they can turn to. He went on to say, in a perfect world, If Minnesota wanted Mac Jones, what do they give up for him? And what are the Patriots willing to trade him for? Okay, so that's an important note here. So I don't think, and this is all in hypothetical, right? Schefter acknowledges the first time he heard of it when McAfee just brought it up. So I just don't think if you're Minnesota, you're giving up anything significant for Mac. Even a third seems too rich for me. And I was texting with the boss, Bill Simmons, about this. And I agree with him. Like, second would be a minor miracle if the Vikings would be willing to offer a second round pick. I just don't see that happening. I don't even see them offering a third because think about it from this perspective. If you're Minnesota, you're not winning this year. You're not. Because part of the reason that this Minnesota team got its season back on track after the slow start is Kirk Cousins was legitimately playing the best football of his career. Mac Jones is not. Mac Jones is playing horrible football right now. So they're kind of stuck in the middle right now, the Vikings, and that's sort of the unfortunate part of their reality. But if you're trading for Mac, he still has another year on the contract, and then you would have to decide on the fifth-year option. I get it. You don't know when Cousins is coming back, but I can't imagine they say, hey, if we're going to try to win next year, we want Mac Jones to be our quarterback. Because if you look at Mac right now, he ranks 29th of 32 qualifiers in EPA per play. That's expected points added. The only guys worse, Bryce Young, a rookie, Zach Wilson, who shouldn't be starting because of the Aaron Rodgers injury, he is, and Daniel Jones, who's been horrible this season. And then you look at Mac, who's supposed to be this guy that is a game manager. He has 17 turnover-worthy plays. 
that's a pro football focus stat, that's the most in the NFL. So nobody in the NFL has been more irresponsible with the football this year than Mac Jones, who's supposed to be the game manager. Like you would expect this type of stuff from a gunslinger, right? Like a Josh Allen type. No, it's actually Mac Jones, who is supposed to be a game manager. Okay, so a couple of other things on this. I just look at the other quarterbacks available. It makes more sense for Minnesota to not give up too much. And some of these guys you can just sign, right? But to just go after a journeyman because Mac Jones, in all likelihood, would not be better than the journeymen that are out there, right? Like Colt McCoy's been linked to them because of the connection to Kevin O'Connell. I think they can do better than that. Like right now, who would you rather have if you're trying to win, Jacoby Brissett or Mac? I would take Jacoby Brissett. He's not going to turn the football over. Same thing for... Andy Dalton. Now, Andy Dalton will take more risk than Jacoby Brissett, but Andy Dalton right now is a better quarterback than Mac Jones. That's just the reality of the situation. So I just don't understand why Minnesota would make that move and give anything up in terms of draft capital for Mac Jones when you can't even look yourself in the mirror and say, hey, this guy's an upgrade over Andy Dalton. He's not. Okay. And then from Bill's perspective, I just think about this. Wouldn't it be embarrassing for him to essentially get a third or a fourth round pick back for a guy that he drafted 15th overall. Wouldn't that just be an embarrassing look for Belichick? Like, yeah, less than two years ago, I fucked up my first round pick and now I'm getting a third or a fourth round back in return. It just, it would look bad for Bill acknowledging a mistake this early. And then one of the other things I would say, say the hypothetical in that situation is Zappi takes over as the quarterback and Zappi looks significantly worse than Mac. That also looks bad for Bill. Now, in the long run, that would be what's best for the Patriots because that continues to keep you in this tanking mode where you can get a top five pick, even if the Patriots aren't trying to tank. <laughs> They're in tank mode based on the results, so to speak, if you will. But nonetheless, remember all offseason, Bill wouldn't commit to Mac. And part of the reason he wouldn't do that is because he actually thought Zappi could be the starting quarterback of the Patriots. That's what he actually believed. So if Zappi goes out there and you just stinks up the joint, it looks even worse for Bill, right? Like, wait, this is the guy you thought was better than Mac Jones, and if he just sucks, it's just a bad look all around, right? So look, I would like to move on from Mac, especially if you can get a second. I just feel like that's a pipe dream. I can't imagine anybody would give that up for Mac Jones. But I think Bill knows right now that Zappi is just so bad and that Malik Cunningham can't run an NFL offense at this particular point in time. He's more of a gadget player, if you will, that at this point, it just feels like, he wants to stick with Mac so it doesn't get even more embarrassing than it already is for him, right? So I think that Mac, what's going to happen is he's going to prove down the stretch of the season like he's been doing for the past two years that he's not the guy and he's not the quarterback of the future. And the Patriots get into a spot where hopefully they get more realistic about who they are and they draft a quarterback in the first round next year. But that's where I'm at with the whole Minnesota thing. Like, for a second there, you thought, oh, maybe could the Vikings do it? Could they actually trade for... No, I, I, I can't see how they would possibly give up anything significant because Mac doesn't help you that much. If you would, if you were saying, hey, this is a significant upgrade over these journeymen, then yeah, you would do it, but he's not, right? That's just the reality of the situation. Okay, so we'll get into the Bs, but I want to start with the Celtics because holy crap, 42 to 19 in the first quarter. You just blew them out of the building in the first quarter of the game, the home opener. First of all, like give the Celtics all the credit in the world, but the Wizards were willing to let this happen. That was embarrassing. By the way, I never want Jordan Poole on my team. This guy, all this guy does is chuck up shots. It still irks me that this guy had a role on that team in the NBA finals. He's getting into it with Porzingis. Like Kuzma's having to like break it up. Not that they were really going to get into it, but it's like, dude, I mean, you're playing horribly and now we're in a situation where you're getting into it with Kristaps Porzingis and your teammates got to separate it. Like, oh wait, that guy... I'm not buying anything that guy's selling. But anyway, getting back to my original point here is one of the things that stuck out to me about this game is just the fact that how often did we see the Celtics have stinkers against inferior competition last year, right? So remember, they got blown out by Chicago in early in the game. Or no, I shouldn't say blown out, but beat pretty convincingly in what? The fourth game of the season, 120 to 102. They lost to Chicago again, 121 to 107. So maybe you say, okay, that's a... It's a bad matchup for the Celtics, but this went on throughout the season. Now, the Clippers were a good team last year, especially when they were healthy, and you got them when they were healthy, but they blew you out 113-93. They lost three times to the Magic the Celtics did last year. They also had a stinker against the Pacers team that wasn't good last year because Halliburton was dealing with an injury. Remember, they were hammered by the Thunder 150-117. to They lost to the Houston Rockets. 
the worst team in the NBA last year. They got they got beat by them 111 to 109. Okay. So first game against a really bad team, you knocked them out in the first quarter. This is where this team feels different, right? Where it's like they are completely motivated to just go out and beat teams down because they know, hey, this is the coaching staff. This is what we're doing. Everybody's excited about the new personnel, the Drew Holiday, the Kristaps Porzingis, and you just take care of them in terms of your opponent. And then you look like Daniel Gafford, Not he was out of this game, not that he was going to make a big difference, but they had no size whatsoever to the Wizards. It felt like to me, and there was a kid, I'll tell you, when I was playing, growing up playing basketball, when I was in fifth or sixth grade, he had one kid that was like six feet, and he was like the first pick every year because he was taller than everybody else. That's what it felt like. It felt like youth basketball when they have one huge kid and he just dominates the league. That's how it felt like early on in this game, seeing Porzingis out there. So anyway, just this team has a different vibe in terms of they're coming after you, right? There's no going through the motions. They are coming after you. They did that in this particular game tonight against an inferior opponent. And if you look at the schedule coming up, you don't really have a really bad team until Charlotte on November 20th. I've watched Charlotte a couple of times for uh, betting reasons, and that team stinks, okay? But let's just say, like, Toronto, not a great team. Brooklyn, not a great team. But those aren't crappy teams. Those are teams that are going to be competitive throughout the season. But let's see if they have a letdown against one of those teams, right? I mean, naturally, you're going to have one or two throughout the, or one or two at some point this season where they just don't show up. But let's see if it's against, like, one of those teams. I just, I love the fact that the first really bad team you played, you don't take them lightly. You punch them in the mouth like the Clippers. They had a bad game against Utah the other night. And we see a team like the Celtics, they come out tonight and they just punch Washington and they don't let off the gas whatsoever in this particular game. Like the Pacers, that's a good team you're going to play Wednesday. I know they lost tonight, but Halliburton's a really good player. Anyway, but the first quarter, it's worth mentioning this because it's so outrageous. The Celtics had 26 possessions. They had 42 points. That's a 161.5 offensive rating. Just like ridiculous. 18 of 28 from the field, 64.3%. And Jalen was the story. He's a plus 23 in that first quarter. He's four or five on threes. He has 16 points. And the Celtics are up 42 to 19. For the first half, the Celtics go 31 for 53, 58.5%. They hit 11 of their 25 threes. That's 44%. So by the end of the half, the numbers came down slightly. 75 points on 51 possessions. That's a 147.1 offensive rating. (laughs) It's like video game stuff. And man, like if I was a Washington fan, like obviously you want to get one of the top draft picks. Here's the problem for them. They're going to be probably the worst team in the NBA. I mean, there's an, a couple other candidates out there, but think about this. Wembenyama just went in last year's draft, right? And now in a draft two years from now, Cooper Flag from Maine, who just committed to Duke, he's going to be the number one pick. So you don't get either one of those like generational stars. <laughs> this is not the draft to be the number one pick. Now, Maybe they'll get it next year as well, and we'll see how the lottery balls fall, but it's just an embarrassing effort from that team. I actually feel bad for, for Wes Unsell because what's he supposed to do? I mean, the guys just don't give a shit. Guys like Jordan Poole, I mean, it's a guy that's going to be sort of like a guy that's taking the most shots in your team. I guess it'll be him and Kuzma this year. It's an embarrassing guy to have on your team. I mean, I, I would not want to trot that guy out onto the court, especially like he's the perfect guy to play for that team. You want to lose? Hey, Jordan Poole, take 30 shots tonight. But anyway. Jalen got his shots up tonight. (laughs) He was on fire. He played 32 minutes. He got 24 shots in 32 minutes. Unconscious from three. Finishes with 36 points. Just pointing out some of the plays. Like, you could tell he was motivated right away because first play of the game, straight line drive to the basket makes it 2-0. Then you could tell he was just in rhythm. Pull up three, 13-5. Wing three in transition, 20-7. Pull up three in transition, 37-14. And then he had the sidestep in the right corner, which is something you don't ordinarily see Jalen do. That's, I don't want to say that's new, but it's not something you see him take advantage of very early. But when he, or very often, when he hits that, it makes it 40 to 14. He was just feeling it. We gave you the numbers in the first quarter. And then in the second half, he just kept it going. And he finishes basically with one of the best performances he's ever had in terms of his shooting. And one of the other things I think about this, and by the way, Lady hit that turnaround jumper that was just insane. I think that it's important in these type of games when you have so many good players on your team, feed the hot hand because what transpired in this game is everybody could notice that Jalen was having basically an unconscious shooting night. So there was an effort 
to get Jalen the basketball. And I think that's important over the course of a season when you're going to be in a situation when not every guy is going to get their shots every night. When a guy's got it going against a bad team, reward that player. And I think the Celtics did a really good job getting Jalen involved. So after the first game where Jalen, I thought that was a tough game. He's played really well since then, and he's definitely getting his shots up, which hopefully he can continue to stay in rhythm. But I thought it was really good. This is when you know the team is all pulling the rope in the same direction is when they see, hey, this is the guy that's got it going tonight. You keep feeding him the basketball. Okay, Tatum, another big night. He goes for 33 and 28 minutes, just 21 shots. A couple of things that stick out to me. It was the aggressiveness. Drives and finishes around Kalabali, the first round pick. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. But the first round pick that he played on Victor Wambanyama's team over in France. Then a nice pass where he finds Kristaps in a mismatch, gives it to him right away. Kristaps makes it 8-3. to three. Has a smaller Johnny Davis on him, shoots right over him. Had a nice lob to Al where Al can't go up and catch the lob for a dunk, so he has to lay it in. He had a three in semi-transition. He had a pull-up over right. And then he posts up Jones. And Derek White, I give him a ton of credit for this. He sees that he's not going to be able to get it into Tatum on the initial pass, but he still wants to. And this is a great Derek White play. He still wants to give it to Tatum because he has the smaller Tyus Jones on him where Tatum's got like what? I would say seven, eight inches on the guy, maybe even more than that. I think Tyus Jones may be 6'1". But anyway, he gets it back to Tatum. Tatum scores in the post. He goes by Kuzma, gives him the little Smitty, the Steve Smith move where you like fake you're going the other way, lays it in. He had a three rate in Kuzma's eye to make it 97 to 62. But some interesting notes on Tatum. Entering the game tonight, because I mentioned all the times that he was taking advantage of smaller defenders. 43% of his shots have come at the rim this year. Prior to tonight, that's via cleaning the glass. 17 field goal attempts, three fouls drawn. Last year, is at 33% in terms of his attempts that came at the rim. That was in the 58th percentile. So he's doing a much better job getting to the basket, and that's part of using his physicality, right? So if you look at it, 16 points in the paint in the opener, 12 points in the paint on Friday, and then 16 tonight. So you're looking at 14.5 points per game in the paint this season for Jason Tatum. If you go back to last year, he was at 11.6. And that's not a bad number, but 14.5 is a really good number. You look at only eight guys were north of 14.5 points per game in the paint last year. Zion was one of them, and of course, he didn't play in a lot of games. He would have been at that range anyway, but Giannis, Shea, Anthony Davis, Jokic, LeBron, and Beat and Bam. So basically, mainly bigs, and then you have LeBron, the greatest forward of all time, and then you have Shea Gilgis-Alexander, who led the league last year in two-point field goal attempts. So it just kind of tells you the company Jason Tatum has been in this year. And we saw it again tonight. So if you tally up his numbers after tonight's game on twos, 25 of 38 on the season, that's 65.7%. He was at 55.8% last year, which was a good number for him, but not a great number on twos. Only five players last year shot better than 65.7% on twos. Claxton, who only dunks. Plumlee, who mainly only dunks. And then you look at KJ Martin, Jokic, who's you know the best player in the league. And Gobert, who basically only dunks, right? So it's just amazing to me. Like, he's not going to stay at 65.7%, but can he stay over 60? I think he can, or at least 59-ish percent, 58-ish percent, but definitely much better than 55.8% because this tells you he's come a long way because if you go back to that Warriors series in the finals, this was his problem. He actually shot the three well, but the Warriors did a great job getting in his space. And in that series, Tatum was just 24 of 76 on twos, 31.6%. Horrific. This year he's at 65.7%. So it just sort of tells you the maturation of the player, taking advantage of his size, putting on the weight, the 12 pounds, and perfecting his craft in terms of playing in the post, finishing through contact. So from my perspective, huge development for Tatum to see the success early on in terms of the two-point efficiency. Now, like we said, this is very early. We're going to have to see him continue to do this. But it's definitely a good sign. Okay. I also wanted to hit on Derek White. I just think that, and I mentioned, I briefly alluded to him. I just think I just think he's so good at playing the game the right way and letting the game come to him, right? So he was the hero on Friday. We talked about it on the Sunday party. He had the 28 points. He took three shots tonight. What did he do? He set the table. He dished out eight assists. He just facilitated. He knows, hey, tonight... This is going to be more about Jalen, and eventually this is going to be about Tatum, but this is about Jalen and Tatum. We talked about, like, 
traditional point guards. Do you need a traditional point guard or not? And this is sort of what a traditional point guard does, where this is a floor general mentality. I'm not saying that he's a traditional point guard, but he felt the game up. And he was the guy with the ball in his hands all the time, and he's just getting rid of it, giving it to Tatum, giving it to Jalen Brown. I just love the way that he sort of adapted to this game, where he felt like, okay, there's going to be nights where they need me to score. Tonight, we're beating the shit out of this team very early. You don't need me to score. I don't need to take a lot of shots. And you could tell he was seeking out Jalen and Tatum to try to get those guys points. I love that. That's what an old school point guard used to do. Old school point guards, like right away, they'd get their big posted up. And I know it's not the same thing, but I just love the mentality that Derek White plays with where he lets the game come to him and feels out what type of game it's going to be. He knew on Friday night, hey, I got to score. They need my shooting. And he does that for you. But anyway, just a couple of plays uh, that stick out to me. He had the steal early on, goes coast to coast, makes it 24 to nine. And then he drives, he finds Al for an easy bucket, makes it 54 to 30. And then a really great play that he had where Poole has an isolation, he thinks, on Al. Poole, this guy, absolute clown show. But anyway, then <laughs> Derek White comes over and just picks it from him. Okay, so Derek White says that. The next possession for Poole offensively, he tries to take Drew down low and like almost like try to bully him. Drew's like, yeah, dude. Uh, yeah, you try to shoot that. Yeah, I, I'll block that shit. Blocked it like right back in his face. So just an embarrassing performance by Poole. But anyway, that was cool to see like the two two of the best four defensive guards in the NBA have those moments back-to-back possessions on Jordan Poole is one of the most selfish players in the NBA. But anyway, he had a deep pull-up three later on, but that was basically, he took three shots. And then I mentioned the play that he had to Tatum, where it was essentially wait until you have the perfect angle to give the ball to Tatum on Tyus Jones, and he made that play. One other note on Derek White. So I tallied up all his threes, starting from the beginning of last season with the playoffs and then this year. He's 206 of 512 after the game tonight. That's 40.2%. So Derek White, since the start of last season, has been a better than 40% three-point shooter, and he gives you elite defense. Like, there's nothing more you can ask for a guy like Derek White than to give you that. Now, we've always known he's an elite defender, but now that he's an elite shooter, he just, he fits in so perfectly with this team, and he's been doing it for the past couple of years. So I loved his game tonight, even though he barely scored. And somebody may have had him for two made threes in this game. He didn't do that. I'm not even mad at him. But anyway, so Porzingis, I thought he was obviously incredibly efficient. He's playing against a bunch of small guys. 15 points on nine shots. He had three assists. And two things stuck out to me. I mentioned those three assists. So first of all, because you knew he's going to have his advantage against this team. But first of all, his cutting and his movement tonight was better than it's been in the first two games to me. Now, I know he had the great game against the Knicks, and that was his best game of the season. But I thought he moved really well without the ball tonight. He cut early on in this game. Holiday fed him because Holiday noticed when he cut, there's small guys around and puts it in, makes it 6-3. And then he has a post on Denny Advia where right away he's like, okay, another small guy. Compare it to Borzingis, gives it to him. Tatum finds and makes it 8-3. And then he cuts White finds and makes it 22-9. So that off-ball movement where it doesn't always have to be a wing, but Porzingis coming from the wing, so to speak, in terms of where he is on the court, cutting across smaller players, he gets an advantage that way. So that's something I didn't notice in the first two games, and he did it more tonight. And then the other thing I would say is his passing. I mentioned the three assists. Twice he passed out of double teams. Once he found Tatum in the corner for a wide open three, Tatum nailed that. And then another time he found Tatum for a cut. So that's really good, like because he's going to get double teamed at certain times. And if he does... You have, you're playing with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and Derek White and Drew Holiday. So he's going to have to be successful passing out of double teams. And he certainly did this in that game tonight. So fun night. And now I'm excited to see this game against Indiana, even though, as we mentioned earlier, they lose to Chicago. But Halliburton, who gets that matchup? Like, are Drew and Derek White going to be fighting over? Because this is one of the best point guards in the league. This is one of the best passers in the league. I can't wait to watch this on Wednesday night because this is like... Not that they're in the same class as the Celtics, but this is a legitimate opponent with a really good player. I want to see how they match up with Halliburton. And then secondarily, this will be an interesting Porzingis game on Wednesday because Miles Turner is a big, like, Porzingis is lifting bigs out of the paint. In the case of the Wizards, he's not because there are no bigs in this game tonight. Gafford was out. But my point being is, Turner's a guy that can lift Porzingis out because he is a good three-point shooter. I'm Like, the percentages aren't always there, but he's definitely a willing three-point shooter. So you're going to have to respect that shooting for Miles Turner, 
So how did the Celtics play defensively without having that shot blocker behind them? Because Porzingis has been so good in terms of coming into tonight's game. The Celtics were by far the best team in terms of field goal percentage against in the restricted area. They were the only team south of 40%. It's 40%. They've been outstanding, okay? So I'm excited for that game. I did want to get to the Bs because awesome win. Awesome win. You beat the Panthers in overtime after the painful series last year. And I thought it was really important today because when we hear coaches and when we hear executives and even to a lesser extent when we hear players, you don't always get the truth, okay? And what Jim Montgomery said before the game tonight, I was just incredibly impressed that he said it. So Jim Montgomery said, this isn't just one of 82 because you're playing the Panthers. He mentioned their summer was miserable until the Panthers lost. And I love that shit. Like, just be honest about it. No, this isn't just a normal game. We're playing a Panthers team. We don't like. They beat us. Kachuk pissed us off that entire series last year. And he, the whole mouth guard thing annoyed me, right? So we as a fan base were upset about the Panthers' loss. They were obviously upset about it. And the coach said, no, this isn't a normal game. It's not one of 82. So I love that about Montgomery. Okay. And by the way, you thought that the Bruins had come out flying. It didn't start out that way. In that first period, you thought, oh, man. Are the Panthers in their head? Because you have the Barkoff goal after the Bruins, basically McAvoy's involved in the rush. They get an odd man rush the other way. Grizzly, who actually unfortunately went out of this game with an injury. We'll see if we get an update on him later on in the week. But Grizzly went out of this game, and then he kind of overplayed the pass, and Barkoff just beat Olmark for the first goal of the game. And then the second goal, Potra gets his pocket picked by Barkoff. Another nice play by Barkoff. Careless turnover, but then he finds Reinhardt for the goal. So that's Potter, a young player in the league. You got to be aware of your surroundings. But right away, you're down two to nothing. And after that first period, you're kind of concerned. And the pot, not that Potter was on the team last year in the postseason, but it kind of reminded you of those careless turnovers that the Bruins had against Florida. And Florida felt like, or it felt like Florida always capitalized on those. And if you look at the first period, they outshot the Bruins 18 to six. And the Corsi rating, that's blocked shots, missed shots, and shots on net, 30 to 16 on five on five in favor of Florida in that first period. So they just completely dominated play. So you think to yourself, okay, what's going to happen in the second period? And give the Bruins credit, they come out flying. Marshawn scores on the beautiful feed from DeBrusque. Remember, Ekman Larson could not clear the puck. Coyle ends up keeping it in the zone, finds DeBrusque. DeBrusque finds Marshawn. Nice little play there by DeBrusque to find Marshawn. He makes it two to one. And interesting too, Jim Montgomery said prior to the game, or he said to the guys calling the game, because I heard, I can't remember if it was Brick or Jackson on the broadcast, that Montgomery told DeBrus that he needs to impact the game more with his legs. Essentially saying, like, you, we need your speed. Because his speed was so impactful for this team last year. Him and Taylor Hall. Obviously, Taylor Hall not here. But those two guys, their speed really impacted the game. And we saw it in that particular play tonight. And then you had the bullshit call on Geeky for the interference, the goaltender interference. That was a bad call. But they kill that off. Anyway, so in the second period, the Bees on five on five, they ended up taking it to the Panthers. The Corsi, 23 to 15 in favor of the Bruins, 11 to 7 in shots on five on five, 14 to 9 overall. So then the third period comes around. You're still down 2 1. McAvoy starts the rush, and you eventually, Pasta eventually finds, well, it, it ends up like Zaka gets involved in the play. It ends up with Pasta. Pasta eventually finds McAvoy. McAvoy puts it and makes it two to two. McAvoy always gets the big celebration too when he scores, like the huge fist pump as he's going down to the ice. So that was awesome. You tie it up at two to two and you felt like, at that point, I felt like the Bruins are going to win a game, win the game. But then it got even more dramatic because McAvoy picks up a major penalty where he definitely hit Ekman Larson high. And quite frankly, I think that was sort of a blindside hit. He looked like a vulnerable player at that particular point in time. But then as a team, like that was a cheap hit by McAvoy. I think we can acknowledge that. And a dirty hit by McAvoy. Doesn't mean we don't love him as a player, but that was a dirty play. But nonetheless, after that, Omark, during that five-minute stretch that the Bruins had to kill off, he had a ridiculous save on Reinhardt. Like an awesome save on Reinhardt to make sure that that game stayed 2-2. Two to two. And after that, it felt like, that's a huge momentum shifter for the Bruins to kill that thing off. And then you go to overtime. And in overtime right away, Marshawn has a chance, can't put it away. But then Zaka, he gets a situation where it's a two-on-one. But I think that Bobrovsky thought that Zaka was going to pass it. So what happened there, it felt like Bobrovsky cheated a little bit. Zaka saw that, let it rip, gets him by him. The Bruins win. 
and now they go to 8-0-1. But I thought that was an awesome night where the Celtics pick up their win in dominant fashion. The Bruins are, not that this gives you revenge because you still didn't win the playoff series, but you wanted to take it to these guys. And after the way the game started, the Bruins are able to come back and just take complete control of this game. So I give them a ton, ton of credit for that win. And it was a lot of fun to watch. And this Bruins team has become incredibly entertaining. And you start to think about it now and you look at sort of the early portion of the season. And to start this way is great, but then you start to think about, okay, well, they beat Detroit on Saturday. We told you Detroit was a pretty good team to start the season. Now you pick up this one against Florida, and then you get another really big test coming up on Thursday night against Toronto, a team that you also hate. So now things are getting really interesting for the Bruins, and then you get Detroit on Saturday again after beating them, as we mentioned, last weekend. So really good game for the Bruins overall, and I thought that really it was... A gutsy win because of the way that things sort of started in the first period when they actually took it to you, when everybody thought it would be the opposite way considering how the playoffs ended last year, but awesome. And I love Montgomery for saying that shit, man. I love it. All right, a lot more to get into. We will get into the trading deadline in greater detail with the Patriots. Coming up next, though, we'll bring in Jamie McClellan. We'll get his take on the night. All right, welcome back into Off the Pike. We bring in producer extraordinaire Jamie McClellan after a crazy night here locally in Boston. Jamie, you and I were talking about before we hopped on, like, man, I almost forgot the World Series is on. I'm a huge baseball (laughs) guy. I'm like, I got to watch the Celtics. I got to watch the Bruins. We got Monday Night Football. I almost forgot. I know it was a lot going on tonight. The only, the only uh, good part. The Equinox. (laughs) But Celtics started off strong. Kind of focused on that. And then you could kind of shift over to the Bruins as the game went out of hand. So it worked out in that sense. Yeah, shift over after the first seven minutes of the game. <laughs> yeah, it was quick. It was quick. What an, what an embarrassment that Seriously. Washington is, Holy man. Shit. That team stinks. Jordan Poole, man, that guy is... I would, I would never want that guy on my team, really. If they said, hey, we'll attach a first-round draft pick. If no. they said they attached two, I'd be like, no. I don't want any part of what that guy's selling. But anyway... What did you make? Because I, I talked about this briefly. What did you make of those Montgomery comments before the game where he said, nah, this isn't one of 82? I, totally, man. It's refreshing. I mean, you know, like you said, they're all saying it in the locker room, but they never tell you the camera, especially watching, you know, 20 years of Belichick. <laughs> it's refreshing to hear some honesty out of the coaches every once in a while. Yeah, no doubt about that. Okay, so we got to do a same game parlay. This is thanks to our friends at FanDuel, our greatest boss and better the week. So I'm kind of getting geeked up now for this Pacers game on Wednesday because I think it's a decent opponent. I heard. Now, they they lost to uh, Chicago. You have Tyrese Halliburton goes for 19 and 13. He's in all likelihood going to lead the league in assists this year. Really good player. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go with Halliburton for 10 assists, Tatum for 25, Jalen for 20, and the Celtics on the money line. So that's a little bit of an interesting same game parlay when we're talking about one, two, three. Four legs, and I think they're all going to hit. Now, the only concern I have is Jalen may be a little tired, man. He took a lot of shots, That's even though true. he only played three quarters. Save some of those for Indiana. <laughs> yeah, I think the, the only th- I mean, you touched on it uh, during the Celtics part. It's just it's tough to know where the points are going to come from with this team. I mean, obviously, Tatum's Tatum, so 25 seems, you know, he, he does that all the time. But, again, they're just spreading the ball around so much. I mean, it could easily be they could win by 20, and he could have 15 points, right? Yeah, I can't see, like... T- Maybe man, not 15. I'm, yeah, the one thing, you can kind of tell the Tatum, I, I, I'm i not saying, like, Tatum is always going to get his points. Yeah, I could just be. Too, yeah. He's just too good not to, like, I can't, like, there may be a game where, you know, he has, like, 12 points or something, but I don't think it'll be because of a lack of shots. Like, the first game where Jalen didn't get his shots, I don't see that ever happening to Tatum just because mm, he has the not. ball in his hands so much. But, yeah, that was... That was the type of performance we want to see because how many times did we do pods last year, Jamie, where it's like, what happened? They didn't show up. And look, it's one game. It's a one-game sample size. But one of my biggest takeaways from the first three games of the season has just been, it just feels like this team is fully all together and everybody has their reasons. Like, okay, Drew Holiday is pissed. The Milwaukee Bucks gave up on him. He was mad about the way that the trade went down, that he didn't find out directly for the team, and he didn't have a lot of time to move and all that different type of stuff. And now he's on a team that is Milwaukee's biggest rival. He has a chance to stop them from winning a championship. He's motivated. Kristaps Porzingis is in a position where he's a guy that has never really played for a good team outside of those years in Dallas, and then they go to the conference finals after he leaves. So he goes to NBA Siberia, in Washington for a couple of years, has to rehab his image as a player to prove he can play 
for a winning team. So now he's in a winning situation. And if you notice, the dude doesn't stop smiling. He's always <laughs> sure, smiling. Seems happy. He said the other day he can't play angry. Like when somebody's trying to get into him, he's like, it's not good for me when I play angry. So he doesn't like to play angry, which, okay, that's that's great. I mean, whatever works for you, man. Some guys need to get pissed off, apparently. He needs to be happy. <laughs> Tatum. Tatum has been criticized for not finishing the job, right? And some of the issues he has had throughout the postseason. And then you think about a guy like Jalen. He's trying to prove that he's worth the $300 million. Joe Mazzulla is trying to prove that he can be a really good head coach in the NBA. And Al Horford, this is the last piece for his NBA career and basketball career. Two-time champ at the collegiate level. This is all, He's been an all-NBA player. He's been an all-star. He's been on an all-defensive team. This is all that's left for Al Horford, can right. he get the ring? So I feel like that motivation there, and I'm not saying that guys were selfish last year, but Jalen was trying to get all NBA. And I understand it. it's $300 million. Grant Williams is trying to get a contract. Marcus yeah. Smart is trying to run the team and trying to coach the team at the same time. This year, it just feels like this group is way more together than they were a year ago. And it just, I don't feel like that's speaking out of turn. They were put in a weird situation with the EMA thing, right? And now right. everybody knows what the deal is. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think on the one hand, they are just more talented this year, but you're true, right. I mean, you, you, they are. They're, they're better players, but it's hard to argue what you're saying. I mean, I feel like a really good team like this team normally, you know, you could just go into like sleep mode and beat this team barely trying, but instead they just crush them, you know, and I think that was a really great sign. I mean, again, that's like a typical game. It's on a Monday night, whatever. Let's beat the Wizards and get out of here. But no, it was over at halftime and I think Missoula, they asked him, like, what should we do the second half? And he said, be ruthless, which I, I love. It's like, <laughs> I, I, forgot, to yeah. Mention, yeah. I forgot to mention this. I almost started laughing because it was 73 to 9, and he still had the press on. <laughs> 73 to 9. Joe, get him back, man. Like, that was, actually, I kind of like it. Like, just that attitude, be ruthless. Yeah, yeah. totally. Charles, Charles Lee, like, relayed a similar message to uh, Abby Chin on the sidelines, too, that they were just going to be ruthless in the second half. And I kind of like that wrinkle of throwing the press on. I think more teams should press in the NBA because even if it's like token pressure at times, what it does is it takes time off the shot clock. Yeah. And it becomes more difficult to get in. And not everybody runs sets, but it gets more difficult to get into your half-court offense. So I like it. I think it's a good idea. I think more teams should do it. I'm happy Joe has been able to do it. Two things I like from Joe. One of them I mentioned the other day on the pod Going after offensive rebounds, they've taken advantage of that. We saw yeah. it again with Al right. in this game. And then the press, like, I, this is nice. I like it, man. Yeah, I think, again, part of the press, but just, just putting these games away early. Like, you're expending more energy by doing that stuff, but thus, you know, you get a chill the whole fourth quarter. I feel like that's a, that's a positive outcome. Yeah, no doubt about that. All right, Jamie, uh, before we let you go here, not that we're going to let you go because you're going to hang around for the rest <laughs> of the pod. But and then after, too. Yeah, and then after. Did you see this start coming from? Well, obviously you didn't see 8-0-1, but did you think the Bruins are going to be like, okay, maybe this could be a team that is one of the better teams in the Eastern Conference. I thought they'd be playoff team like we chatted with Connor Ryan before the season, our preview show. I thought they were a playoff team, but I thought they'd probably lose in the first round. And look, who knows? Like when the playoffs come, we didn't might. think they were going to lose to Florida, right? <laughs> they still may lose in the first round, but they've looked a lot better yeah. to me than I thought they would coming into the season. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I got to be honest. I, I read the articles and everyone said, oh, you know, they're going to fall off. Last year was their last swan song with Bergeron and Krejci. But, I mean, when you think about it, obviously Bergeron's great, but they had so many great players last year that are still in the club, you know? Even like you said, Omar had these amazing saves. Tonight. McAvoy scores a goal. It's like they still have all this talent, so. Yeah, and yes, cost is just stupid. Yeah, I am surprised, but I guess in hindsight, it's like, well, maybe we uh, – you know, overestimated how just losing a couple of players. I mean, again, that sounds stupid with Bergeron, but they, I, my point is they still have a lot of great players and they're playing great so far. Yeah, you still got, even though you lost Bergeron and Crazy, you still got a lot of core guys. And yeah. like, I think I got maybe got a little bit caught up too much in losing Bertuzzi and Hall because I really like those guys. I and I that. thought, yeah, I thought Bertuzzi was like the perfect fit for this team, but you still had Coyle, who was like incredible on the penalty kill. You can bump him up to the second line. He can play on the third line, wherever you want to play him, right? Like, that guy's important. Lindholm's important. So they've had and the, the combination of the goaltending. I just yeah, didn't think amazing. the goaltending would be as good as it was a season ago, and it has been so far this season. So it's great to watch. I mean, basically, we have two teams in Boston right now that are yeah. good. 
like really good. One of them is the favorite to win the NBA championship. And one of them just came off the best season in the history of the NHL, although they flamed out in the postseason. We all acknowledge that. It was painful. And then we have two teams that stink. But at least one of the teams that stinks, at least they got Craig Breslow coming in, a new guy, and maybe we'll get something different in terms of what happens from a front office perspective. Yeah, well, at least we're in the, you know, getting in the thick of it for the NBA and NHL. And yeah, I am I am optimistic about the Red Sox. I am too. I mean, it can't be worse than it's been over the past yeah, couple of years. True. And that's for damn sure. <laughs> All right, so, Jamie, good stuff, man. I appreciate it. Of course, Brian. All right, coming up next, I want to get into, obviously I'm sad about this Kendrick Bourne situation. So we'll address that, plus the one guy the Patriots need to move at the trading deadline. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. This episode is brought to you by UGG. Y'all know UGG is a brand that athletes wear all the time in the tunnel and on travel days. Well, I bet you think UGG season is only during the colder months of the year. Oh, contraire. You're wrong. You need to check out the latest spring drop from UGG. They have everything from sandals to clogs. I like the sandals. UGG has you covered for your next spring adventure. Shop the golden collection at UGG.com. All right, I did want to get to some Patriots because we got some unfortunate news. So on the Sunday pod, we had the report from Ian Rappaport after the game that the Patriots thought it was just an MCL issue for Kendrick Bourne. But we wake up on Monday morning and we find out, well, Kendrick Bourne is out for the season with a torn ACL. The hope is he'll be ready for next season, recovery six to eight months. Guys come back sooner than they used to from torn ACLs, right? So a couple of things here. You know I love Kendrick Bourne. So this just sucks. He was having a great season. I feel bad for the guy after all the work he did in the offseason. Remember his wife? We had that story about his wife helped him clean up his diet. We know that he put on a bunch of weight. He was noticeably bigger this season. So you just feel bad for the player. And you know me, Derek White and Kendrick Bourne, those are my guys. Derek White fan club. I love Kendrick Bourne. Ever since I started this pod, I've been preaching about how good Kendrick Bourne is and how underutilized he has been until the past, I would say, four to five games. But the point being, I just feel bad for the guy. But I want to get into what this means from a bigger picture perspective for the Patriots, right? So right now they have a top five pick. If the season ended today, which of course we still have half of the season left, but they have a top five pick right now. And you have Arizona, who's one in seven. You have Carolina, who's one in six. And their pick, of course, goes to Chicago. They actually beat Houston over the weekend. Chicago is also a two and six, like the Patriots. The Giants are two and six. They blew that game Sunday against the Jets, which you kind of wanted the Giants to win that game if you're a Patriots fan, which most of you that listen to this pod are Patriots fans, of course, and you have Green Bay at two and five. So having Kendrick Bourne not on the field makes it increasingly more likely that the Patriots end up with a top five pick in the draft. So you look at it this season, just in terms of what Bourne provided and sort of to paint the context of how big of a loss Kendrick Bourne is, right? Because You think about it like across the league, he's not a household name like A.J. Brown, who you could argue is the best receiver in the NFL, or Tyreek Hill. I guess those would be the two guys in the conversation along with Jefferson, who's dealing with the injury right now. But Bourne has 406 receiving yards. The closest guy to him on the Patriots is Hunter Henry at 238. Demario Douglas is at 222. So those are the only other Patriots over 200 receiving yards. Again, Bourne's at 406. Bourne is at 50.8 yards per game. The closest Patriot is at 31.7 yards per game, which is Demario Douglas. Okay, Bourne has four receiving touchdowns. The rest of the team has five. Henry has one. Farrow Brown has one. Remember that? That was like the high point of the Patriots season when they beat the Jets. I guess you could argue the Bills. Speaking of the Bills, Mike Gusecki has one. He had that one, of course, in the Bills game. And Juju Smith-Schuster had the one on Sunday. So the rest of the team has five. Bourne has four. Like I said, he's not one of the best receivers in the NFL, but he's like the only guy that's consistent on this Patriots team right now. Bourne is 40th in the NFL in receiving yards. Henry is 81st and Douglas is 92nd. So you don't have a single receiver, tight end, running back, however you want to label it here, in the top 80 in receiving yards now. None of them are in the top 80. 
So this has been your one consistent guy. Now, my hope is that the rest of the way, they just feed Douglas. That may actually be something to look forward to the rest of the season, right? Let's see what they can do with Douglas. Let's see how, how creative they can be with Douglas. Because at this particular point in time, I'm looking for interesting things to watch with the Patriots. We are already stripped of the Christian Gonzalez watchability, if you will. We don't get to watch him anymore. That was the most intriguing player on the Patriots from my perspective after we saw him battle with the Eagles receivers. We saw him battle with Tyree Kill. You don't get to see that anymore. At least Douglas, it feels like he could be a building block for this team going forward. I'm at least excited for that. Okay, so if you look at receivers this season, more on Bourne. He's tied for 10th in Yak per reception at 5.6. And by the way, he's tied for 10th with Jalen Waddell, who's one of the 10 most explosive players in the league. He's right in front of Jamar Chase. Okay, that's how good he's been after the catch. 208 total Yak, that's 13th. So my whole thing now is clearly you're not trading him. He's in the final year of his contract, but he's also injured. Why would any team trade for him? They wouldn't because it'd be one thing if he had like two years left on the deal. He doesn't, so you're trading for a player that may never play for you. It just doesn't make any sense, right? But next year, he'd be in his 29-year-old season. And look, if you're the Patriots, you have to be confident in the medicals, and we're in the early process of this, right? We just found out today that he tore his ACL. Or... You should have, if you're not confident in the medicals, have somebody else look at them other than the person that looked at Juju's medicals because clearly that person was mistaken. Anyway, I believe this is a guy that you want to be here. You look at Kendrick Bourne. The performance was good. He's having his best season. He's really good after the catch. Guys love him. He brings juice every day. You could tell today when Matthew Slater was doing his press conference, like he was really hurt by Kendrick Bourne being out for the season. So, this is a guy that I would want to keep here long-term. Like, even if the Patriots, they're not going to be competing for Super Bowls the next two to three years, I want a really good receiver to stay here. Even if he's not a number one, he could be a really good number two option if you end up ever finding your number one. I'll get into that in a second here. But if you can get, and this may sound unfair, if you can get born on a team-friendly deal with him dealing with the injury, it's something that I would certainly consider, Okay. So my buddy Rob Bradford from WEI has pointed this out before. So Theo Epstein did this with Josh Beckett. Beckett had a bad start to the 2010 season. He got bombed in the opener against the Yankees, gave up five earned and four and two thirds. So after that, he signs a four-year, $68 million contract extension, does Beckett. So this is after a guy like A.J. Burnett had just signed for five years and $82.5 million dollars. And of course, Beckett had been the far superior pitcher. Now, I'm not saying Burnett was a scrub or anything along those lines, but Beckett was already established as a big game pitcher, went in the World Series, and I know Burnett was around too, but went in the World Series early on with the Marlins, then doing it again in 07 when he was great in that 07 run. Now, Beckett dealt with an injury that season, a back issue. He was not great in 2010, but the next year he posted a 289 ERA. Now, remember, that was the chicken and beer year, 2011. We'll never forget that, the epic collapse. But the point being is, despite the injury in 2010, this is a guy that went 17 and 6 in 09 with a 363 FIP. He had a 119 whip. He could have gotten more on the market after the 2010 season, even if he was dealing with an injury, right? Cliff Lee signed for 5 and 120 in the 2011 offseason. So an extra year and an extra 7 million per season than the deal Beckett ended up signing. So now Lee was coming off a really good 2010. But the point being, there was not a good crop of starting pitchers that offseason. Beckett could have gotten a lot more money. And quite frankly, maybe it would have been, maybe it worked out better for the Red Sox because despite the fact he could have gotten more money, it was, it ended up not being a great deal for the Red Sox, right? Because he was good statistically in 2011. But as we mentioned, you had the whole chicken and beer fiasco. So some of the guys that you put a deal in front of, like Beckett in this case, he sort of, he was dealing with an injury. And not that he knew exactly what it was yet, but he was not himself to be in that season. So you see your athletic mortality, if you will, and maybe you want that security. Now, he comes back, and of course, he is somebody that really, outside of 2011, is never the same pitcher again. So maybe he's just happy in the long run he took that deal. But I truly believe he could have got more money in the open market. So if we look at Bourne, ACL's... Guys are coming back way easier than they have in the past, okay? And I'm sure that Kendrick Bourne knows that, obviously. But he may just want security, right? In terms of, hey, let me get a contract. He seems to like being around here. Maybe he just wants security with the Patriots organization. And I know this may sound like, hey, you're taking advantage of the player. 
But in this particular case, it's business. And if it's a contract that Kendrick Bourne would be willing to sign, I would put something in front of him if you felt good about the recovery, if you will. And look, we're a while away from you offering this type of extension, but he's a guy that I would want to keep around. All right. The other thing I want to mention, and I alluded to this, I really want to see how they dig into Demario Douglas because they're already starting to do it last two games, six targets and then seven targets. Now, not a lot of damage on Sunday, just the 25 yards. But the prior game against Buffalo, he was really good, four for 54. So Douglas on the season, some of the outlying metrics are really good. We mentioned this with Kendrick Bourne in terms of Kendrick Bourne's outlying metrics. Pro Football Focus has Douglas ranked as their 28th best receiver. And I'm not saying that's the be-all, end-all. I always preface when I reference Pro Football Focus, it's not the be-all, end-all. But they have him graded as their 28th receiver, right behind Mike Evans, okay? So (laughs) that's pretty good. But some other things, he's actually in front of Bourne in yak per reception, one spot ahead. He's ninth among receivers at 5.7. So the guy makes plays. He's an efficiency monster. You look at his yards per route run, 1.93, that's 28th in the NFL. So that tells you he's efficient. Even in a pass game that's not very efficient, he's 28th in yards per route run. You look at his numbers against zone coverage, a 118.8 rating when targeted, That's tied for ninth in the NFL, right in front of Debo Samuel. He's caught 12 of his 14 targets against zone, 85.7%. That's tied for eighth, 15.3 yards per reception. That's 15th. So obviously we're not going to see, teams are not going to play a ton of zone against Patriots because you're not scared of anybody, but it's just some nice numbers to look at with Douglas and sort of what he's done so far in his rookie season. And I don't want to sound crazy. But who else do you really want to get the ball to on this Patriots team now that Bourne's out of the equation? We're recording on Monday night. We may see Parker get moved at the trading deadline, but he's in concussion protocol right now. I don't really think they will move Parker just because, and look, I could be wrong on this. I'd be happy if I'm wrong on this, if they actually move Parker. I just think it's going to be embarrassing for the Patriots because they traded a third round pick. They're not going to get much back in return. But right now for the Patriots, I'm about watchability, as I mentioned. The Patriots have had so many games this year that were not watchable, the Dallas game, the New Orleans game, and Douglas is at least exciting. You don't have many pieces on this roster that are interesting, so at least give us something to be excited about, and one guy you could be excited about is the young receiver you just drafted. So if you think about it, Jacoby, I lo- like when's the last time we've seen this? The young receiver the Patriots have drafted you're excited about. Jacoby was an undrafted guy, but and I you liked him as a player, but he was not like box office. Jacoby Myers is not must-see. We were excited for Thornton, but he's done nothing. By the way, speaking of that, how about these numbers? Just an update on uh, George Pickens, who the Patriots drafted Thornton 50th. George Pickens went 52nd. George Pickens, 24 games, Thornton 15 games. Yes, part of that is injuries, but Thornton also was a healthy scratch. For the Patriots, how can you be a healthy scratch at receiver for the Patriots? 80 receptions for Pickens, 24 for Thornton. 1,323 yards for Pickens, 255 for Thornton. Seven touchdowns for Pickens, two for Thornton. They each have one rushing. 55.1 yards per game for Pickens, 17 for Thornton. 16.5 yards per reception for Pickens, 10.6 for Thornton, who's supposed to be a deep threat. He's at 10.6 yards per reception, right? We're talking about 56 fewer receptions. We're talking about 1,068 fewer yards. We're talking about five fewer touchdowns and almost six fewer yards per reception. He's supposed to be somebody that threatens the defense. So, man, that 2022 draft, just a slight digression here, is a disaster. Cole Strange and Thornton, your first two picks. And think about how bad Thornton has to be right now that he can't crack this receiving core. They stink. Think about the difference Pickens makes for this team. You had a chance to get the kid from Georgia, but you got the old lineman who was like 24. Doug Kide told us about this a couple weeks. He thinks it may be Bill's worst pick of all time. Okay, 24-year-old lineman and a guy that can't get on the field in Tyquan Thornton. Marcus Jones out for the season. Jack Jones, good rookie season. He's been okay this year. He's dealing with the -the off-the-field stuff, of course, before the year. Pierre Strong's gone. Bailey Zappi can't play. And it's incredibly disappointing because Mack is a bottom-five quarterback. He's at least playing like it right now. There's only three quarterbacks worse than Mack and EPA per play this season. So he's playing like one of the worst quarterbacks in the NFL. Zappi can't play for him. And Kevin Harris. I mean, that's the draft. We're in year two of this thing, and it already looks like it was a useless draft. You just wasted an entire draft, it looks like right now, which tells you how bad that draft was. Anyway, so you really need Douglas to work out. It's like the Sox inability 
to produce homegrown starting pitchers. We were talking about this with Lou Maloney. It's sort of like that situation right now for the Patriots. They cannot develop homegrown receivers. It's been going on forever. But anyway, circling back to Bourne, your best offensive player, as we mentioned, is now gone. So if you look at the upcoming schedule, Washington looked frisky last week. They could have easily beaten the Eagles. Sam Howell will look to turn it over, but against the Eagles, he was good. 39 of 52 for 397 yards. He completed 75% of his passes by those numbers. Four touchdowns, one pick, a 114 rating. He's capable. Like, he's capable of playing well. Like, his high is pretty high. Now, his low is really low. Like, he'll screw up a game for you, but his high is pretty high. A 119.7 rating two weeks ago. So, that now becomes a game, especially without Bourne. I believe the Patriots are going to lose this game to Washington. Then you look at the Colts. Yeah, they've lost three straight games, but they get Carolina next week. They should win that game. And if they win that game, they're looking at, what, four and five? They've actually been doing things on offense. They have Taylor back last week. He's 12 for 95. That's a team that almost beat the Browns. That's a better team than people thought, especially after Anthony Richardson went down. The Giants stink. So, I mean, the, I, the Patriots should beat them. They stink. The Chargers are not good, but... They could still be competing and Staley's coaching for his job, right? And then, and I know that Bill is the two games against Herbert. He's owned him. But nonetheless, so the reason I point this out is this is a critical stretch to tank for the Patriots. If you lose four straight, I think they'll go one and three. But if they lose four straight, man, then you're looking at Pittsburgh, who's of course got to be trying to get into the postseason despite their bad offense. Kansas City, Denver, who pulled off the upset. Buffalo, you'll lose to them after you beat them, and then New York, okay? And I know you have this history over New York, recent history of the long streak, but New York is going to be competing. So the best thing is to get a top five pick. You have a real chance here, okay? Like, what does a win do for you at this point? I think the Patriots got their, like, Super Bowl win of this season against the Bills. Now let's be serious. From a fan's perspective, I want them to lose out, get the best possible pick, get into the t- make sure you stay in the top five. You're in there right now. You have the worst record in the AFC, which is just embarrassing, so you might as well stay in that bottom region there, and get one of the quarterbacks. Okay, one other thing, trading deadline, of course, coming up on Tuesday. I believe it's at four. It's either at four or five, but nonetheless, early evening on Tuesday. If you can get a third or a fourth, especially if you can get a third for Uche, you got to do that because it doesn't feel like he's part of the long-term future with this organization. And if you look at the numbers, and he's missed a couple of games here, but 16.5% win rate via PFF pass rush win rate. That's a really good number. It's 17th amongst edge players. If you go to last year, he was the ninth ranked pass rush player among edge players. 19.2% win rate, which was sixth. 11.5 sacks. That was tied for 12th overall. And he's in the final year of his contract and he's 25 years old. Okay. So if you just look at those numbers with Josh Uche, that should be appealing for a team. And if you look at it in terms of a contender, does Dallas want another edge, edge guy? How about Detroit on the other side of Hutchinson? I'm just pointing out teams here, but you would think that you can get either a third or a fourth round pick for Josh Uche. And if it's me, if I'm not going to be able to sign him long-term, I might as well go ahead and try to get something back for a turn with Josh Uche. I would be considering moving more players, but Uche is the guy that I think has the most value for the Patriots in terms of guys you're actually willing to move. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172. Email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Strudy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com RG in Colorado, Iowa, Kentucky, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXTSTEP to 53342 in Arizona. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org chat in Connecticut. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700, or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland, visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia, 
or call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call 1-877-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY in New York. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.